Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. I guess I ought to be welcoming myself back. I had a little brush with COVID. You can probably still hear it in my voice. So yeah, it's it's um, it's good to be back. It did, does kind of mess with you. Just all of the, um, I guess I'm late to the game of getting COVID. Everyone else had it in, in my family quite some time ago. And I thought maybe I was like superhuman or something. And But nope, just turns out just an ordinary person like everybody else. Yeah, and... Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I got a podcast here in store for us. I want to talk about worship and what we worship and and the fact that we all worship. It's kind of an old-fashioned word. It's unless, you know, you're going to church and you you are regularly you know, listening to worship music or something. It's not a word that people use very often. And I think it's a word that in the modern world we're quite uncomfortable with. And I want to I want to talk a bit about that. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm going. And uh, I'm going to read some David Foster Wallace as a way of, you know, getting us going here. I think you're, you're going to find this quotation pretty interesting, this little passage. Uh, before I do so... Yeah, a couple ads. I I have a retreat at the end of October, an intensive, which I'm calling Exploring the Sacred Masculine, and so you can guess what it's about. So last weekend uh, in October, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I really want to encourage you to come. It kind of filled up, but then a few people dropped out for various reasons, so I've got some spots. Would love to have you join join me. It is a a men's-only retreat. And uh, I've been, you know, for a long time, I've been a little uncomfortable with, quote, men's work. If someone were to invite me on a men's retreat a few years ago, I'd be like, ah, no thanks, go ahead. But I've, um, I've come into the work in kind of a roundabout way, in a slow way, starting with the book um, Iron John by Robert Bly, which I read it kind of a long time ago. I've read it five or six times. I give it away to my friends. So, I mean, I've been into it uh, in, my, in my own way. And I, I have a feeling in a sense that a conversation around the masculine and the feminine, around the sacred masculine, the sacred feminine, what do we mean by these things? And uh, what cultural and personal messages are we carrying around around these, these images, these realities? And how are they working on us? or working through us, the unhelpful messages and wounds that we carry in these areas. And, and I have not found many spaces uh, and places where conversation around the masculine is very welcome. So I'm doing my own small part. Okay, let's talk about this stuff. And, um, and, it, and it, of course, it's going to be, it's, um, this retreat's at an amazing spot, about an hour north of of Grand Rapids and an artist that I'm getting to know has some property up there that backs up to some federal land. So it's, it's quite remote and, um, it's a, it's, it's an intensive where you can camp or you can rent from him a, a space if you're not into the, the whole camping thing. <laughs> but, uh, being in a wild place and doing some wandering and some practices and some conversations will be part of 
what we'll be doing on this retreat. And just being outside has its own way of mirroring back to us these deeper realities, like the dance and tension between the masculine and the feminine and between our own souls and, and the wild world and, and the mystery of our own soul and the mystery of the divine, if you want to, for that matter. So, okay, that's coming. Check on my website, kendobson.com. And then I have an Israel trip, which I mentioned last time. It's going to happen. And uh, it's the very end of February, beginning of March. Really looking forward to that. They continue to shape me. And I continue to experience a lot of joy and meaning. And I feel quite grateful and privileged to, from time to time, get to wander in in the land of Israel. And and it's a, I find them to be a, a pretty rewarding and kind of unfolding conversation, even prayer that happens among the group around religion and spirituality and politics and meaning and cultural background and language. And it's like a confluence of, of um, a lot of different uh, disciplines, Bible and theology, and, and it's just quite life-giving. So if you've always wanted to go to Israel and want to do a different kind of trip, my, my trips, I, I hope, and I've been working on it for almost 20 years now, making them unique. Uh, Israel is one of the most visited places on earth in terms of tourism and both Palestinians and Israelis rely pretty heavily on the tourist industry. So I'm not doing anything that new. Um, at the same time, my approach and posture and even many of the sites that we go, it's, it's quite different. It's quite unique. So, um, that's on the table. So maybe that's enough in terms of, of ads. Uh, although right now I'm feeling like I want to, again, thank my, uh, patrons, who support me through patreon.com forward slash Ken Dobson, if you want to do it. So um, really just feeling very grateful. As you know, everything right now is getting more expensive, including making podcasts. So your uh, contribution, anything from, anything from a dollar on up has, has made and is making a huge different difference in my life and, and makes it possible for me to put this, put this out there in the world. So thank you. And as a reminder, if you're, um, a patron, please, please send me a message anytime through the site or send me an email, questions, comments, observations, um, you know, rejections, uh, disagreements, resistances, all are welcome. And it really, it, it helps turn a podcast in, into a conversation rather than keeping it in kind of the monologue world. It is a conversation. That's the way I think about it. And so when you speak back, it helps me. And um, so, yeah, that just want to remind you of that. Okay. So let's talk about, about worship. So here's a, here's a passage from David Foster Wallace. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. Anything, 
is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Like what, you may wonder? Oh, I don't know. Like drugs, like alcohol, like sex, like politics, like gambling, like Facebook likes, like trending. Anything else will pretty much eat you alive. He's, I think, revealing something really important and really deep about our essential nature, our essential human nature. Jung calls this reality the religious instinct. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Jung says that we have a religious instinct. And what does he mean by instinct? Oh, I don't know. Fight, flight, freeze, sex, shelter, you know, the deep, limbic, evolved over millions of years, instinctual self that you cannot get rid of, you cannot um, press down, you cannot deny, you cannot ignore, nobody gets out of it. Wait a minute, there's such thing as a religious instinct? And he says, yes, and it's transpersonal. So that means, you know, in a funny way, if you say, like I have said many times, oh, I'm not religious. It's like denying an essential part of our human nature. Like saying, oh, I don't have fight, flight, freeze. I somehow, I somehow got out of that. Or my belie- I just believe that I don't have those things. You know, it's silly. It's silly. And so, I mean, you know, I guess you could wonder this on your own. Do you think Jung is right here? Is religion that deep? The religious instinct that deep? And, and maybe some definition is in order about, about the nature of this religious instinct. Here's another way to put it. Uh, an orientation toward what ultimately matters. That's the religious instinct. An orientation, a deep orientation to or a posture or a stance toward what's ultimately true or what ultimately matters. That's like a, a compass, an internal compass in the depths of our being. And even, even to, to say boldly and sincerely and genuinely, I do not believe in God, the religious instinct is still operating. You're still making a claim of ultimate truth. You're still making a claim about what ultimately matters in the world. Even nihilism, I probably said this before on the podcast, but the, you know this conviction that there is actually no meaning is itself a claim of ultimate meaning. So yeah, there the religious instinct is at work. And, and, and I've noticed, and you probably have too, that politics right now has become the new religion in America. And that definitely needs to be examined. And, and I've largely seen it on the left, to, to be honest, this this increased zeal around um, 
an ideological posture of us versus them. It's like all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, I, I recognize this. This is fundamentalist religion happening all over again in the guise of politics. Now, what drives that? Now, it's complicated and complex, but on the instinctual level, what drives that, at least in my view, is the religious instinct. It's like, okay, all right, this thing is operating. What is ultimately true in the world? And it can be easily co-opted by an ideology, by a political perspective, by a political persuasion. Like, apparently Jung had carved above the lintel of his own door the, the phrase, called or not, God will be present. You know, phew, that's a mysterious... Um, if that's true, that should shake us to the core, whether you're religious or not. But called or not, God will be present. That 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 the the um, kind of love affair between the mystery and the divine, and our own desire to be connected to that, to that wholeness, to that oneness, is operates no matter what. And the compass, that instinct can easily be co- be co-opted by something temporal and and paper thin you know it's it kind of it's kind of like this let's say let's say we're right here and, and we have this religious instinct and um, isn't it true that if we don't have much of an experience and I think that's the key word of uh, transcendent meaning or of the divine of God if you want to put it that way, when, when, in other words, when the ego has little or no experience of ultimate meaning, then what is, it kind of freaks out because the religious instinct is still pulsating down there and it kind of freaks out and it starts clinging to things like dogmas and um, kind of out of fear, dogmas or doctrines or, or perspectives or philosophies or, or ideological political positions um, as a substitute, as a kind of substitute. And I think something like that is happening like on, on a very large scale right now as kind of religious institutions begin to their sway over over human over just like ordinary human life and, and value formation and is lessening. It seems to be the case that it's lessening. Then these other um, less rich, at least in my view, uh, perspectives than offer a, a place for that to go, for the ego to cling, cling to and, and as it's being activated by the religious instinct, something like that. Okay, so that's really point number one. We have a religious instinct and, and we all worship. All right, here's point number two, that human beings do in fact have the capacity to experience the numinous, um, to have an experience of wonder or awe or connection or union. In other words, we have the capacity for religious experience. And we do, in fact, have religious experiences. I think one of the things that that you might find challenging is, what if you just brought some conscious attention to that? Have I had any, quote, religious experiences? What, how would I describe them? Even if they're very subtle, they don't have to be like the clouds part and you know, like the big mouth of God and Monty Python, you know, telling you something. Think about the Elijah story where it says God is not in the, in the fire and in the wind and in the earthquake, but in a still small voice, in a voice that's even, is so quiet the ego can't hear it, something like that. Yeah, so I would like to say we have the capacity for a religious experience to taste 
um, something larger to 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 have the experience of a kind of connection with a whole that is greater than our own individual smallness. Or the numinous. Numinous means to wink, you know, like the universe kind of winks at you and you you feel like, oh, um, my perspective on life has been too small. And And you could even say, I really don't like this metaphor. I don't even know why I'm about to use it, but I'm going to because it's a popular phrase. We're wired for this. We're wired for this. We're, um, the psyche is, there. there's a shape in the psyche into which religious experience fits easily. You know, I, I'm starting to write a bit about this. I, I'm, I'm having, well, the truth is I'm having trouble writing. I've written two books now that I aren't, I don't want to publish. I'm not going to publish. And I'm working on a third, which I'm taking hopefully some of the best of the things I've been working on and working on it again. I'm just in one of those um, places where it's a grind and it's, and, and that's what it takes. Anyway, I'm, I'm working on, on something right now. And um, it's, it's interesting. I'm trying to be a little bit more honest about my own experience. And one of the things that, that has deeply surprised me is, is about the time I started to announce to myself and sometimes to others that I was not religious. I was maybe spiritual, but not religious. Uh, and about the time I exited the evangelical church uh, in terms of it, it, it paying my bills and also being kind of like the, a center of gravity in my life. And, you know, I always had a kind of an uncomfortable relationship with it anyway, but, you know, this kind of liberation, I'm out of here, you know, uh, and uh, walking away from the church. And I, and I had a kind of series of dreams that were oriented around this. And um, the biggest surprise of my life is that I started to have religious experiences, like experiences of the numinous and the, and the mysterious that rock me to my core, that, that shook me up, that dis- destroyed and dismantled who I thought I was in the world, like uh, dreams and visions and... Um, things that are very hard to describe. It's like, I'm out of here. And, and the mystery said, you know, something like, well, not so fast. And, and in part, that's because we're shaped like this. And when we're ready enough, some mystery comes into our life and confronts us. You know, Isaiah has these amazing visions of beings that are half you know, half beast, half man, half divine, winged, many-eyed, you know, creatures. And like, a, a, you, you would think like a mountaintop experience, the, cl- the, the, you know, the clouds parted and he glimpsed uh, the deeper mysteries of the universe. And, and his response to that was, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And now I know what he's talking about. It's like, yeah, okay, woe. Um, I don't know what I'm talking about. And I've, I have unclean lips. I've spun uh, whole webs of bullshit, you know, to, my, to myself and, and in public. Yeah, woe, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And, 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 and my second point is that, yeah, we're, we're shaped like this and we're meant to have experiences of our wonder. Heschel says that, that, the beginning of all religion is wonder. It's not the denial of death. 
It's not the fear of death. It's the experience of wonder. That's the root of all religion. And maybe I, I could define religion at this point. It comes from, as you've, you've probably heard me or others say, from religio, which means to rebind. Ligio is like where we get words like ligament or to make straight, you know. So it, it, it re-straightens things. It realigns us. And yeah, we're prone to lose, lose our way. This is all what all great myths and stories have in common. And, and religion, in a way, and religious experiences realign us with ultimate meaning. Like if you think about the Moses story for a moment where he's out minding his own business, kind of running away from his problems in a way, like um, becomes a shepherd after growing up in the heart of the empire and the Egyptian empire and being kind of a big deal. Then he murders an Egyptian in a kind of rage and, and he runs away. He runs away from Egypt and he's just making his life out there as a shepherd. And one day he sees, sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed and and he starts to get curious and he wanders over toward, toward this, like something about the natural world wakes him up again and, and winks at him and, and lures him closer to this kind of mystery. And from, from the burning bush, from within the burning bush is the voice of the divine. And his reaction and invitation is to take off his shoes. See, that's a worship posture. That's a, okay, how am I going to align myself with what I don't yet understand? And he takes off his shoes. So um, what I'd like to suggest is all human beings have this capacity. And all human beings, I think, even experience these tiny moments of things that are on fire but not consumed. And sometimes we have the consciousness and the willingness to take off our shoes and thus the experience deepens and it, and it goes in and it realigns us in some way. And, um, and we start to be more curious about the nature of reality itself with a capital R. And what is my place in this, in this thing called life? The abyss out of which my life dimly emanates. That's Teilhard de Chardin, yeah. And we've come to the edge of this abyss and, and the, this kind of numinous and winking experience brings us to our knees in some way. At least that's the invitation. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. You didn't realize it. You didn't realize the world is the way the world is. And um, Now, what I maybe would like to add at this point is, is that this fundamental experience of the mystery of, of the universe. That's what I would call a religious experience. So what is religion as, as we normally speak about it? Well, we're not often speaking about those experiences. We're speaking about what happens in the wake of those experiences. Maybe what we could say of, and I don't mean this negatively at all, but of the stories and myths and legends and eventually the doctrines and creeds that come up out of religious experience, that's what we're, what we call religion. It's like there are two chapters. The first chapter is the raw experience. And the second chapter is how the heck do we talk about it? And maybe the first way we talk about it always is through art. That's why cave paintings are the first expressions of religious experience. And that's why that's followed by poetry. How are you supposed to talk about these things? Well, we can only talk about them through art because they can't be talked about very easily. And the art itself kind of evokes the mystery of the experience itself. And then sometimes that's not enough and we want to put further parameters around that. We want to say, well, what does this art mean? And then we have the kind of prose commentary on the art and that we might call the stories. 
um, and legends. And then what follows that? Well, something like, well, how are we going to live our life if this is true? And then that's often the laws and doctrines and and decrees and uh, statements of faith that follow that. You're not, you're about five steps away from the raw religious experience. And what else are you supposed to do? You know? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the laws. I really don't, you know, like, ten, take the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's that raw, um, shaking, earth-shattering, tripping and falling down experience of the sacred. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Um have no other gods, you know, except me, or before me is the English translation. Have no other gods. Like, okay, how am I supposed to align myself if this is true? Even if I don't have the experience, and that's what kind of religious tradition is. We may or may not have the, the experience, and yet there are laws and decrees and doctrines and statements, and, and many times those get in the way. I'm the first to admit that. I mean, religion can always be critiqued. That's the story of Jesus. He criticizes his own Judaism, yet somehow remains within it. But um, there's a dance between the stories that we tell about the experience and the experience itself. And, and, and oftentimes, I think many of the laws and doctrines and statements of faith are meant to help us walk in a certain way, they often don't, but they, they're meant to help us walk in a certain way a, with a certain kind of posture, a certain kind of openness to, to the, the mystery coming in and ruining our lives. <laughs> you know, there's a crack in everything and that's where the light gets in, you know, and the light gets in if we're, you know, walking in a certain way. I think this is why, why T.S. Eliot says, kneel where prayer has been valid. He's saying, all right, that is a good question to ask, where has prayer been valid? I'll let you wrestle with that. But what's the posture? The posture is kneel, like, okay, fall down. Um, or prayer as posture. How, how would I orient myself if, in fact, um, the world is not as I thought? And, and my instinct toward meaning is constantly pulling me toward what's greater than myself. Well, his advice, his imperative is to kneel. And that's a troubling passage. Like, I, you know, I'm, I've always been a little uncomfortable with prayer. And I'm not, I'm not proud of that. You know, there was a time when I was proud of that. You know, I, I'm not going to pray before a meal or, you know. But, you know, in my own narcissistic arrogance, you know, I've, I've been afraid. That's, that's the fundamental truth. I don't want to kneel. I'd rather be the center of the universe. I'd rather be the sun um, and the planets revolve around me. That's that, that narcissistic and egocentric impulse that we have. And there's no way in hell I'm going to kneel before anyone or anything. And, and if I stick to that too long, it's going to eat me alive. That's David Foster Wallace's warning. If we don't kneel before the transcendent, before something larger than, than our small self, then, then we're the center of the universe and that will eat us alive. Our tastes and proclivities and ideas and proclamations and, and um, posts and uh, image and persona that we put out there in the world then becomes the center of the universe and, and that will destroy us. We could even say that's what des what's destroying our culture right now is uh, our own narcissistic worship of the small self and our identities. 
Okay, am I making sense? Okay, here's point number four. Um, okay, let's say we have one or two or five or half of a religious experience. You know, it is an important question. How am I going to live in relation to this? Is it, It's sort of like saying, um, you know, I got this from someone I, I, I was meeting with in a, a one-on-one setting just yesterday. And so um, I don't know if he listens to my podcast, but I'm going to quote you here. I'm not going to use your name, so I just want to thank you. But he said, sometimes I wonder... Um, that, you know, maybe life is a little like the religious calendar and every once in a while there, there's a high holy day, <laughs> kind of a high holy experience. And, and I would add to it one that we least expect. But most of life is, is, is just ordinary time. You know, you have the high holiday time, holiday times, and then you have ordinary time. And, and most of even our own spirituality is worked out on the level of the ordinary. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been on any retreat or program or intensive. I lead them. I go on them. You come back home and it's like, you know, uh, the hot water heater doesn't work and the ceiling is leaking and the dishwasher uh, ruined the baseboards. And you can tell I'm not making any of this stuff up. Yeah, it's like, okay, yeah, ordinary life, ordinary time, and this is where we work these things out. And, and, um, and so the question of then how, how do I walk? How, how do I align myself? And, and oftentimes, big, high holiday, high religious experience so shocks us that we have to do a deeper dive into who am I and what am I doing and what am I? It's like, woe, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And this happens to Jesus. This is, this is the story of the wilderness wanderings his own 40 days and 40 nights, his own between um, imprisonment and exile, uh, imprisonment and slavery and the promised land. This is his own 40 days and 40 nights. And I don't think any of us can and should skip this psycho-spiritually. We need desert time. And, and it says that the Spirit led Jesus out to the wilderness where he was tempted. So there's this dance between uh, the being infused by the spirit and um and and the and satan's temptation and the tempter the okay look deep here why are you really doing this who do you really think you are and this is what happens this is why isaiah says i'm a man of unclean lips like some if followed by some kind of self-examination in other words so the temptation story is interesting, and one reason why I want to bring it up, I'm not going to do the whole thing. I could do several podcasts on it, but I'll just sort of paraphrase. So the tempter, Satan, that's a, a certain character in the Hebrew Bible, Satan, the tempter, um, has this whole like, you know, uh, challenge with Yahweh in the book of Job. And so it's kind of referring back to that. And and the tempter says, okay, uh, first of all, turn these stones to bread. And, and Jesus says, you know, Human beings do not live on bread alone. And, and so bread in, in many ways is just is an image for kind of the work that we do in the world. How identified are you with the work that you do, the, the, the thing that you craft with your hands? You know, bread doesn't grow on trees. It's something that, that we, it's an art form and a craft, and, and it's our, our labor, our work in the world. And is that, is that the, the center of your, your universe is the first temptation? The second um, is uh, well, what what comes next? Um, oh, oh, yeah. Go to go to a uh, go to the the Temple Mount and jump off. 
says the tempter. And this is, I think, in many, in many ways, I, I'm sort of stealing this from Henry, Henry Nowen. He says this is the temptation to be spectacular, to be known and noticed. And this is, this is what our culture is now absolutely obsessed with. This is fame. This is um, being known for the mask that we're, we're wearing and projecting out there onto the world. And, and um, imagine if Jesus were to jump off the Temple Mount and he would be known as the, the, the high jumper, you know, or whatever. And like, do it again, Lord. <laughs> like, keep doing it. Like, how amazing. And, and you know, Jesus turns away from this temptation. And these are inner temptations. I mean, these are what we all face to a certain extent. And the third temptation is the one that has to do with worship and and the one I want to say a few more things about. So this is the temptation to, of power. And and so Satan, Satan says to, to Jesus here, um, all the kingdoms of the world I give to you which raises the question of, of, of kingdom itself. And, and of course, Jesus' number one image and message is the kingdom of God is at hand, and, and most of his parables and teachings are about the kingdom. So what kind of kingdom are we talking about? You know, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of the divine? What is the kingdom of the mysteries? What is the kingdom of reality with a capital R? And what are the kingdoms of this earth? What are the human-made, human-crafted kingdoms? And where does the power reside? And, and so Satan says, it's all yours. If you'll bow down and worship me, if you'll orient your life, this is the question of worship, if you'll align and orient your life um, in such a way as you'll bring yourself under uh, the temptation of power and of the personification of the satanic um, grip of human power. Now, I'd like to say this story is really happened <laughs> in the sense of this must have been something Jesus faced in the wilderness of his own psychic landscape. And it's something that every single human being wrestles with. Am I going to bring myself under what? Am I the center of the universe? Is my power the center of the universe? Is the kingdom my own personal kingdom that I am ruling and reigning? You know, these are the, the, the these are the, these questions are sort of behind this temptation. And Jesus says, um, revere the Lord your God and serve him only. Or in, a, in another translation would be, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's, he's quoting from Deuteronomy here and from the Shema, what follows what's called the Shema, which is the most famous and uh, creedal. It's creedal in a way, not in the same way that the, the, the Christians have a creed, but it's as close as Judaism gets to a creed. You know, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is something that the, the, a religious Jewish person, um, an Orthodox Jewish person in Jesus' day and today would say every morning and every evening, and it's part of the synagogue, uh, where it, it's a question of alignment. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to align myself. Um, I'm not going to put my own power at the center of the universe, but I'm, I'm going to fall down, revere, and align myself um, with something greater. Uh, with the mystery of, of Yahweh, whom Jesus comes to know as Father. And, 
you know, it kind of reminds me in a way of, of 12 step, the 12 step uh, recovery process, which is a kind of spirituality. It's, it's a kind of religion in a way. It's a religio, it's a rebinding. And, and you say, I, I can't do it. And you submit to a higher power. Now, I know this gives people, it's kind of amazing. Like if you're an addict, you know what this means. If you're not an addict, you're likely to say, well, you know, there's no higher power, you know. Well, if there's no higher power, then what, where is power centrally located? Well, it's centrally located in the small self. That's what people are saying when there is no higher power. And I know this. <laughs> and this is, the, this is the temptation of narcissists to stare into the pond and fall in love with his own reflection. This is staring into your phone and falling into your own personification, your own algorithm reflected back to you. I am the center of the universe and I, uh, and, and, uh, I am the sun and everything revolves around me. And, and you know, you're not saying this out loud. It's more of a, of a conscious and unconscious, mostly unconscious disposition. So it's humbling what I'm saying. Religio to be rebound is humbling. And and what I'd like to say is, you know, I don't know what you think about, about this podcast so far, but I want, I want to ask some questions here. Like, here's a simple one. What am I worshiping? Like, really, 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 what am I worshiping? If Foster Wallace is right, and we all worship something, everybody worships. Really, honestly, if I were to bring my own humble, repentant, in a way, consciousness to this question, what would come up? This is self-examination. Self-examination is a non-negotiable in all the great religious traditions. It's there in Buddhism, it's there in Islam, it's there in Christianity, it's there in Judaism. We're somewhere near Yom Kippur, the high holy day in Judaism, where, where you're supposed to ask for forgiveness from everyone you may have insulted over the last year. God, I mean, I wish, I don't even like to go to Ash Wednesday, you know, which is the, a similar kind of impulse, you know. Self-examination is hard. And yeah, what am I worshiping? What image am I worshiping of myself? What, what image do I want other people to worship? You know, to adore me as that kind of thing. You know, maybe I'm worshiping, I don't know, at the, at the, right now our culture is worshiping the altar of youth, of adolescent, youth, middle school, consciousness, and beauty. And and there's something beautiful about adolescence, but we're worshiping at that altar. I mean, I'm about to pick on people here, but it was it was homecoming, and um, so the you know, the parents went, you know, to this location. My son was is a senior, and and we were taking pictures, and I was just noticing, and this might be a hundred percent pure projection on my part. I'm ready to admit that, but I was noticing how many of the parents are dressing like teenagers. You know, me too, I guess. Um, yeah, I have a Pearl Jam shirt. You know, for God's sake, because, you know, I had a Pearl Jam shirt when I was 17 years old. And um, okay, so fine. Pearl Jam's awesome. I, we all admit that. But what is this quest? Quest for youth and for adolescent um, values and perspective as then, then carrying all the way through to life. And, you know, it's like the beauty industry is, the, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry rooted in and we're going to live forever, like the Oasis song. You know, maybe I'm, I'm bowing down at that altar. Here's another altar I, I find that, that we're tempted to bow, bow down at. And 
worship and this is freedom you know my personal freedom you you have this on the left and the right and it's various versions you know no one can tell me what to do um, I am the captain of my fight. I'm the master of my soul. I, I, it's my values and what I think and I feel and my taste and my proclivity, and nobody can challenge this. One of the paradoxes of, of ancient religion, the ancient perspective, ancient religio, is that true freedom comes in paradoxical conversation with discipline. And you can say, ah, no way. It's actually just no no boundaries, no guardrails, no fences, no laws and no rules. That's ultimate freedom. And, and it turns out that what, what is unleashed is often a kind of anarchy of the psyche, of the soul, of, of, of a kind of inundation of chaos. Yeah, so if you worship at that altar too long, um, it's a prison, it seems to me, at least. Am I worshiping at that altar? Here's something that we're all bowing down to, regardless of, of um, you know, what kind of stickers we put on our car, and that's the economy. It's the God that we're worshiping. We're willing to sacrifice children and lands and, and oceans and airways and air and water um, just to serve the Almighty God of the economy. And, we're, and we'll bow down before it. We'll, we'll make tremendous sacrifices for growth, for economic, um, f- for economic growth. You know, you might start to wonder if there's something about Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Have no other gods before me. Because we're likely to erect what the, what the Bible would call idols and then sacrifice our lives to them. Here, you know, you might be bowing down and worshiping your own reputation. You know, fame, fame right now is so infectious. It's like, it's kind of scary. I mean, I don't know if you've seen those, those interviews with young people, you know, kind of like, let's take to the streets and interview young people. And what do you want to be? I want to be a YouTube star. You know, it's like, yeah, uh, me too. And everybody, it's like 15 minutes of fame. Andy, Andy Warhol wasn't messing around, and now it's 15 seconds of fame or however long a TikTok video is, and I'm trending, and I went viral, and, and, and it's a reputation here. And if I, have a, kind of, if I have a glowing reputation in the public eye, then I will know who I am, and, and, and we'll worship that. You might even be worshiping, you know, the kind of negative reputation and image that you have of yourself, like as a rebel or as a victim. We live in a very victim and wound identified culture, and and it's the thing we'll rally around. And not only do we worship at the altar of our own victimhood, we want everybody else to. And that's not to say, I mean, there are re- there are victims in the world. There are atrocities. There are missteps. There are traumas that are that are um, laid. That, that we experience that we didn't choose and that are wrong. But to be identified with that reputation ends up becoming the God that we worship, and it will eat you alive. You get what I'm saying here. What am I worshiping? What am I in service to, in other words? And maybe it's time. The fall often feels like that to me. It's like, all right, let's, things are settling down from the summer and it's time to do some self-examination. And what do I have to learn? And how have I been wrong? And 
Is there something greater than my small self? Really? Have I ever tasted it? Has it ever winked at me? Has it ever uh, disturbed me in my dreams? Has there been some strange and synchronistic conversation I had with some wild-haired, unexpected elder one day that expanded my world? And what if I listened to that? What if my behavior and values and ideas and emotions aren't the center of the universe? And what if I oriented my life around meaning? What if I admitted that I am actually a deeply religious person? I'm admitting that right now. I am a deeply religious person, not only because I believe we all have a religious instinct, but, but because I want to orient, orient myself around um, the mystery. And what if I took that as the most serious calling in my life to cultivate and honor and bow down and kneel and I, honoring the, this instinctual compass that, that points toward meaning. And I took it as the most serious life and death kind of task. You know, it's like, uh, it's like that guy that says to Jesus, hey, I want to become your follower, but I have to go bury my father. And, and I want to become your follower. I want to be your disciple, but I have to go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You know, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. You know, this is not friendly Jesus. This is like, uh, you know, really, what are your values here? What are you orienting your life around? What are you worshiping, in other words? And I think the final question that, that is, is bothering me and continues to bother me is how might tradition and, and what I know the most is, is the Christian and Jewish tradition, the biblical tradition, the, so, but, but it could be, it's that and more, all right? But So how might tradition, our religion, our stories, our dogmas, our myths, uh, both affirm and challenge the small self, might rock us in such a way, or help, that, that's one thing, might rock us in such a way, challenge us in such a way, or give us a kind of path, a Tao, a way, uh, to orient our lives so that we can more fully open to, um, to being rightly aligned, to, to bowing down, so to speak, uh, to what ultimately matters. Okay. Yeah, I feel like uh, it's a good place to land here. Maybe uh, I'll just read the David Foster Wallace passage here again. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship. And I'm, I'll just, I'll add something here. It, sometimes it doesn't feel like a choice. It, you know, maybe, it, or I just thought of Jesus. He says, remember, you did not choose me, I chose you. So maybe it's a little more mysterious than that. But, but the will is certainly involved here. But the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Thanks for listening.